Well, good morning. It is so good to see your smiling, beautiful faces this morning. In case we haven't had a chance to meet, my name's Will Pinnell. I have the honor of serving on staff here at Grace. And whether you're in person or online at Heritage Green, we're glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. If you want to get plugged in, if you want to get more involved, or you just have questions, I want to encourage you to text that phone number that's on the screen and, and uh, connect with us and, and ask and involve whatever uh, you would like to do. We would love to have you a part of this family. I really think that of us as a family um, that's here for each other, and if there's anything we can do, we would love to help. Uh, we are in week two of our rerooted series as we're going through the book of Matthew. And last week, we started by just kind of doing this overview. <clears throat> we started by doing this, this overview of, of who is Matthew and and what is he writing about? Who is he writing to? What's the purpose of this? Why did we choose Matthew to go through for 30 weeks? I promise it's not going to be near as boring as that might sound. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm excited about it. If you missed last week, I want to encourage you to go back on YouTube or Facebook to the podcast and, and listen and get caught up because I'm so, so, so excited for Matthew chapter 2 and looking a little bit at Matthew chapter 3. And I don't know who the bozo is who planned to do like a chapter and a half of Matthew, but there is just way too much stuff in here for me to really dive into and, and go through as thoroughly as I would like to. That would be me. I'm the bozo, by the way, just, just to be clear in case anybody missed that. <laughs> There's this balance that I'm trying to strike as we go through the book of Matthew of having an overview as the first century reader would have read or heard the book of Matthew, and, and our responsibility to dive in and see really, really some of the cool intricacies of what Matthew and what God through his spirit in, in Matthew's writing does. And sometimes we can get so caught up in the detail that we forget that Matthew was, was written, and, and most people in the first century, as they were reading Matthew's, Matthew's writing here, they didn't have their own personal household copy of the book of Matthew. They didn't go on Amazon for $4.99 and have a copy of Matthew sent to their, their home. They had maybe a, a copy for several homes or for, for a city. They, they sat down, they heard this. And so we're going to dive into as much detail as we can while also taking a 10,000-foot view of this book as we go through it to see the overarching purpose and point of what, what Matthew's doing. And so we started last week, we looked at the first few verses of chapter 1 that I'm sure most of us have skimmed through and not really read and dived in, dove into on our own, and we saw some of the beauty of what God has, has done throughout history and how Matthew writes to this Jewish audience and he points back to how God has been working, how God has been, been moving. He points back to the, the lineage of Jesus to show how God has been moving and working. And, and now, now as Matthew moves on from here, he's pointed out how God has, working, has worked in the past and has been working through history. And he says he's still working. He still is working. He's still moving. And he references a lot of prophecies. He ref references a lot of the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills those prophecies now through several short stories. So in Matthew chapter 2, we're going to pick up, and what we see is the story of the wise men. And I'm sure that most of you, if you've been in church for any period of time, as it comes to Christmas, you've heard this story a few dozen times. 
Wise men come from, from far away, and they come searching for the king of kings who's been born. And as they get near Bethlehem, they start asking around. Verse 2, they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Now, as they're asking around, King Herod hears that they're asking about a king of the Jews, and he does not like this idea that someone else might be ruling in his place, that maybe someone's coming for his job. And usually, usually for kings and who comes after kings, the next king, it didn't end so well for the first king. If the first king was still living and there was another king who was, who was born, who was coming up, who was rising up, usually it ended with the death of that first king. So Herod is very concerned here, and he's trying to protect his territory. So he goes to his leaders, his wise men, and they find this passage in Micah chapter 5. Micah 5, 2 says, Bethlehem, Ephraim, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity and from ancient times. And they find this passage, and, and so they, they point them, the wise men, in the direction of Bethlehem. And King Herod says, you know, when you find this king, come back and tell me where so I can go worship him too. But we all know that was not his plans. And so the wise men go on, and they find baby Jesus, and it says in verse 11, entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. They opened their treasures, presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we traditionally think of three wise men because there were three gifts, but the, the, the reality is, the truth is, that Scripture doesn't tell us how many wise men they are. In fact, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly where they come from or, or who these wise men, who these magi, magi were, who, who they are, where they came from, we don't really know. But we know that they came to worship the king who had been born. They come to worship him, and, and they come and they bow down. And imagine Joseph coming home from work and seeing these people here worshiping your year-and-a-half, two-year-old son who was just born a couple years ago. Like That must have been a, an interesting scene there. That night, the next verse, it says, they had been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, and they returned to their country by another route. And they're not the only ones to get a visit from an, from an angel and a vision at night. The next verse says that Joseph has a vision also, has a dream. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in verse 13 in a dream saying, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. Now, we generally have the wise men at the nativity scene when Jesus is born. But most likely, Jesus was a year and a half, two years old at this point. He, he wasn't an infant. Now, now remember, Mary and Joseph weren't from Bethlehem. Remember the, the decree that went out that there would be a census, and so Mary and Joseph went to Joseph's homeland where they would register, they'd be counted for the census, and it was there in Bethlehem as they were fulfilling that law that had been decreed that Jesus was born. And so Joseph must have had some family in the area. It's his hometown. After all, it might not have been his parents, maybe some aunts and uncles, some family. And we get this idea then that they stayed in Bethlehem for a little bit. For a year and a half, two years, for, for a, an extended period of time, they put down some roots while they were there. And if I had to guess, after having an, an infant and a two-year-old myself, um, it can be hard. <laughs> 
raising little people. Amen? Anyone else been there? Anyone else done that away from family? I understand why they stayed in Bethlehem. And now God is telling them to go to Egypt? Outside of Israel altogether? No friends, no family, no connections, no job lined up, no place to stay with a two-year-old. This wasn't like it was today where we can make a phone call and, and buy a home over the phone and seeing it over Zoom or over FaceTime. They had no plans, and so they packed up, they went, and they landed in Egypt. And again, <clears throat> and they were there for some time. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. They were there for some time when, again, they had uh, another vision. Joseph had another vision from an angel of the Lord, verse uh, 19 uh, and 20. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. And so after some time, after a few years, Herod had passed away, and, and it was now safe to take Jesus and go back home. And so this happens again to, to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy. Hosea 11, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And so what Matthew does here is he tells these short stories, not, not going into detail about the wise men, because frankly, that's not the important part of the story. He's setting up little scenes here. I'm not going to go into detail about what happens in Egypt, because that's not the main point. I'm, he's telling little parts of the story, because to his Jewish audience, it's a really big deal how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. He continues in verse 23 to list one more that when they went back to Israel, they didn't go back to Bethlehem or back to where they were living before. Then they went and they settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Matthew goes through these details, not because of the details of, the in of these stories in particular, but to show how Jesus fulfills all these Old Testament prophecies that in the first century would have been really hard for Jesus to fulfill. Being born one place, but coming up out of Egypt, being known as, as someone from another place completely other than those first two. We live in a world today where it's not uncommon for us to be born one place and live somewhere else, grow up in a third place and get married, move to another state, move to another country. And we live in a world today where that's common. I was born in England. My parents moved, and we were in North Carolina for a few months, and then my dad ministered in Hopewell for a few years, and then settled in the Bristol area, southwest Virginia, and I moved around. And that's not uncommon, but in first century, this was very uncommon. And so Matthew, Matthew lays all of this out, not because the details of each particular location and what happened is so important, but to draw these strings back to the Old Testament so that his, his Jewish audience knows all these prophecies that you've heard about for so long, they're being fulfilled in Jesus. And here's how they've been fulfilled. Here's how he came to be born in Bethlehem. Here's how he came to live in Egypt. Here's how he came to go to Nazareth. Here's, here's how it all unfolded. And so he just lays out this story. And it's important for us to keep in mind why he does this and the, the purpose behind it. But as I read through here, there was another theme that came to mind 
And there's another theme revolving around a little five-letter word that we don't like to talk about a whole lot. It's hard for us to talk about. It's five little five-letter word of trust. Trust. Now, trust in our culture and society is a big deal. When it comes to friends, when it comes to family, people in our circle that we should be able to trust, if trust is broken, it hurts deeply. It takes a long time to build trust with new friends, with new acquaintances, with new people that we meet. Trust is a, it's a big deal. And as I read through this story, I could just see Matthew and hear kind of the side comments of Matthew telling his audience, trust God. Trust God. Trust these plans and what he spoke years ago through the prophets. Trust that he is working it out. Trust that he is not forgotten about you. Trust that he is still moving, that he is still working, that he is still doing good. Trust. And what I think as the Spirit moves through what Matthew is writing, I think there's some some key elements to trust that we see in the text today that I want us to talk about. I think if I were to ask most of you in this room, you would say that you trust God. If I were just to leave that as a blanket statement, do you trust God? Most of you, I hope, would say yes. For a few of you here, maybe for a few of you tuning in online who, who are a little leery of coming into a church building, maybe trust and the perception that God has broken your trust has been the thing that's kept you away for, from church for so long. But I think that our idea of trust sometimes can end up being a bit shallow. We, we say we trust God, but really like we're, we're good to like dip our toe in this kind of trust of God. We're not, we're not really willing to, to get into really the depths of what it means to trust God. There's three components of deep trust that I want to talk about this morning that I think are reflected in Matthew 2 in the, little, in the first part of Matthew 3. And the first part of trust is that it involves worship. <clears throat> we see the wise men coming from wherever they came from to worship baby Jesus. This, this little one, they, they came to worship and their worship involved bowing to their knees and, and worshiping and, and a verbal acknowledgement and worship of God. And their worship involved the giving of gifts of gold, frankincense, and more. And, and worship is a big part of trusting God. I'm not even necessarily talking about our worship time today, what happened a few minutes ago, what we're going to do in another few minutes as we continue our worship and song corporately together. That's fantastic. But I'm talking about your private life, at home, in your heart, in your car. Are we worshiping God? At Church Online, you actually might have an easier time worshiping God in your heart on a Sunday morning than we do who are here in this place. It is so easy for us who are here to think that, well, well I'm coming to church, I'm coming to worship, therefore I am worshiping. But, you know, inevitably the kids don't get dressed as they should before you leave the house. You're running a few minutes late. You have that conversation in the car that led to an argument or frustration or tension. And you come into this place and next thing you know, we're singing songs. But it's not worship. And we're singing. There are words coming out of our mouth. But our mind is somewhere else. 
Our heart is somewhere else. And it's not worship. And the wise men didn't come and set up a sound system and, and gather the town for a worship service. No, they went into the home where baby Jesus was and they worshiped Jesus. And now, again, Jesus was probably about two years old at this point. Jesus, Jesus didn't do any miracles at two years old. He wasn't speaking these deep theological truths and doctrine of God and talking to the nature and the character of God. Not at two. They weren't worshiping Jesus because of what, they had, what Jesus had done for them, because of his great wisdom or his great might or his great strength. No, they worship Jesus because of who he is. And if we're going to really trust God, it involves some true, authentic worship in our heart. That whether we come into this place here, we're worshiping online, we're on our, when we're in our car going somewhere, going to work, that we can have moments where we pause to truly worship God, not necessarily for what He's done for us, what He's given us, but for who He is. Often worship, like the, the wise men, includes the giving of gifts, includes giving of financial gifts, giving of time. It involves giving something to God as an act of worship. And we can't truly, authentically trust God if there's no worship. The second component to true, deep trust that I think we see in the text here is obedience. Obedience. The wise men at a very basic level, they, they went, they were obedient, and they followed the star to where Jesus was to worship Him. They followed the vision that they had, the dream where the angel told them to go a different way. They were obedient to that. Joseph, as hard as it would have been to go to an unfamiliar place with no plan, with no family support, he left. Think about the trust that Mary had, that Joseph was telling her the truth, that, she, that he had this vision from God, and the trust that Mary had as a mom of a toddler going to a place where she didn't know anybody. There's an obedience as they followed God and what He asked them to do. Coming back or coming back to Israel, I don't know about you, but man, <laughs> I'd hate to be gone for just a couple years, a few years. We don't know exactly how long it was because someone was trying to kill my son and it's only been a couple years. Are you, are you sure I can come back? Are you sure it's safe for my family to come, to come back? But they were obedient to what God had called them to do. And we, to have true, authentic, deep trust, must also be obedient to what God has called us to do. We must be obedient to what His Word lays out as far as our expectations and our responsibilities as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, to, to follow Him, to live lives that reflect holiness and, and purity and righteousness. We should be obedient. How can we say we, we trust God when His Word tells us to do something and we don't do it? Of course, we can think of, of the big things. We think of the big things like, I, you know, sleeping together before marriage, or I didn't kill anybody, or lying to the IRS, or fraud, or, you know, these, these big things killing people. Of course, I'm obeying those. But as we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning, before Adam and Eve had eaten from the apple from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
they just simply disobeyed God. There's no even knowledge of evil before they eat from this tree, right? Before they knew what evil was, they just simply disobeyed God. The expectation being that God asked for a tithe, 10%. Are, are we tithing? Are we giving 10%? God asked that we, we not lie. Have we told a little white lie to protect someone's feelings? To avoid a hard conversation that we don't want to have, that we don't, we don't have time to have right now? What about the small acts of obedience day in, day out to think about such things that are holy and pure and righteous and what Philippians lays out for us. It's not just the big things, church, but it's the small ways that God had said, if you would just trust me, just trust me. Things might not work out as the world defines great, but they'll work out in ways that you can't even begin to imagine. Do we really trust God enough to obey what he asks us to do? Finally, I want to hop over to Matthew chapter 3 real quick. In Matthew chapter 3, I think we see a third very crucial and important aspect of trust. And in Matthew chapter 3, it's been a few years since the other stories, and this is where John the Baptist comes on the scene. This is how Matthew describes John the Baptist in, in Matthew 3, 3. He says, For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, John the Baptist, it was his job, it was his responsibility to prepare the way for Jesus. To tell, the, tell people who, who would come to listen, Jesus is coming. He's on his way. He's here. This is who he to pre prepare the way for Jesus to start his ministry. And I believe that this third very crucial component of trust is pro proclamation. It's following in a similar footsteps as John the Baptist to proclaim that Jesus is here, that he's coming, that Jesus is here with us. And we see this idea other places in the New Testament. Romans chapter 10, 14 and 15 says, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? How can they believe without hearing him? How can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now this isn't talking about preacher as far as what I do and my job and my role and just those who are officially paid as preachers. It's talking about us as Christians, as followers of Jesus to go and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your heart regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, sometimes I think when we, when we read passages like this, what we get in our minds are... are you, taking up a sword for Jesus, right? I'm going to go, I'm going to battle, I'm going to tell the world about the goodness of God and what they're doing wrong. And That's not what we read. From Romans, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. If we read the next verse in 1 Peter 3.16, yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience. You know, it's not our job. Nowhere in Scripture does it say go into the world and tell them what they're doing wrong. 
go, go and be the moral police of our culture and society. No, but give a reason for the hope within you. Go to people that you work with, to your neighbor, and say, man, you just don't realize the mess of a person I was before Jesus. Maybe it was nothing huge. Maybe it wasn't this some dramatic uh, testimony that you have of being a, a drug dealer or any big you know, murder or anything like that, but, but I was still a mess of a person. And here's what Jesus did when he came into my life. He turned it upside down in a way that just doesn't make any sense. There, there, is, a, there is a peace that I had never experienced before in my life. There, there's just a... Life has different meaning and purpose. And I'm not stressed about the things of this world as I was before. And, and tell people of the good news of Jesus Christ. And those three pieces, those three pieces will deepen our trust in God in a way that we can't even begin to imagine. And each one of those are, are critically important. If we have worship and obedience but no proclamation, it's like we're saying we don't care about other people. That we acknowledge what God has done, who God is. We, we've seen through obedience what following Him is like, and we, we've tasted that, we've seen that with our own two eyes but we don't care enough about other people for them to join us in heaven. We don't care enough about sharing this good news with other people. For whatever reason we want to come up with, we're scared. We don't know if we'll have all the answers. We're, we're, we're timid because we don't fully, deeply trust God. If, if we have worship and proclamation, but there's no obedience, then it's just empty. It's hollow. We're being hypocritical of, I'm going to acknowledge God for who you are. I'm going to tell people about your goodness, but I'm not actually going to do it myself. I'm not going to live this out in my own life because I don't trust God. If we have obedience and proclamation, but no worship, then it turns to be self-centered. We don't recognize that God is God, that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and, and we start looking at what what I'm doing, what God's allowed me to do, and it becomes more me-centered than Christ-centered. And sometimes that gets to us. Sometimes we're concerned about the platform that we have or the influence that we have, and we don't want to lose that. And, and it's hard because we don't trust God in a deep, sincere way as He's called us to. What Matthew does in the first chapter and the second chapter in doing this overview and drawing connections to the Old Testament is the same thing that we do in our world today. He says to the people of Israel, you've been waiting. You've heard these prophecies. You've been waiting for so long. So let me tell you about Jesus and how he fulfills the prophecies. Let me tell you about why you can trust him because he is God, because he fulfills these prophecies. Let me tell you about who Jesus is, that he is here to be worshiped as the wise men did, that, that God is protecting him and he's, he's sent him to another place to avoid 
the sword of Herod. Let me tell you about Jesus. But it's something totally and completely different to enter the story ourselves and trust him ourselves and put us in the story. We'll tell people all the time about what maybe God has done for us. Sometimes we'll hear about it from other people. I can get up here and I can tell you all these stories from my life about what God has done, about how he's faithful, about how you can trust him. But the question is, are you going to actually trust him? Are you going to put yourself in this story? Are you going to take a step out and not just dip a toe in, not just say and pay lip service to say, yes, I trust God, but actually trust Him? It's not easy. But you will experience God in a way that you never have before. And so I just want to encourage you as you think you might be trusting God, to really examine, do you trust God? Is your worship authentic? Is there obedience in your life? Is there proclamation that you're telling your neighbors and just what God has done for you about the new life that he's given you and how great it's been? Are you actually trusting God? Father God, I am so grateful for the opportunities that we have to trust you while also recognizing that every opportunity to trust you is also an opportunity to pay lip service and to not really trust you the way you've called us to. Lord, I pray that you will impress on all of our hearts through your spirit where we need to trust you more, which area of these three that, that is lacking when it comes to trusting you. And God, may we not trust you at just a surface level, but may we dive in, may we jump in the deep end and, and trust you because you love us so much, you have our best interest in mind because you gave everything to have a relationship with us and you are trustworthy. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.